Thank you. Good to be here. And uh, thank you for asking me to read. Happily do that. So I'm reading from Acts 11, um, verses 1 to 18. That's when Peter explains what happens when he had this vision at Jaffa or Joppa, as it says here in the text, the place of beauty. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance. I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in the house. Oh, now I lost in his house and say, Sent to Jaffa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is the story of our, the Gentiles' salvation. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the ability to gather in this space this evening with this group of fellow believers, fellow followers of the crucified and risen Lord. Father, we thank you for joys big and small and for those things that show us you at work 
among us. Father, this evening may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So I want to start this evening with a question. What does it mean for there to be revival? Or to rephrase the question in keeping with the theme of tonight's service, what does it mean for God to be at work among us? What does that look like? Now, when we say the word revival, there are images, I'm sure, for many of us of tongues of fire, loud voices, strange tongues, and perhaps babbling speech. (laughs) And the presence of God in a way that we have not experienced or imagined in any other setting. Now, that all is crucially important, but Acts suggests, I think, that there's something actually much more going on. And we can see this in Peter's response to his challenge from the Jerusalem leadership regarding his visit to Cornelius' house. Now, the way this passage is often fit into the narrative of Acts you end up with Pentecost, and then they're persecuted in Jerusalem and sent out, and they end up finding that God has come to the Samaritans as well. The Spirit falls in Samaria at the preaching of Philip. And then you have, finally, the expansion of God's people to include even the nations, the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, ungodly, unrighteous heathens for the Jews who live in Judea in the first century. There is a whole litany of all the terrible things that Gentiles are, and if you'd like a taste, the beginnings of Romans chapter 1, where Paul lays out all of the terrible, terrible things that God allows people to live into is a list that echoes quite strongly a laundry list litany that Jews in the first century would keep as all the terrible things that Gentiles do. And we know this because someone else said this list to me and someone else and so on and so on. Gentiles are terrible and thus so are we all. But what's interesting about this passage in particular, if we read carefully the challenge that the Jerusalem leadership lays at Peter's feet in chapter 11, the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God has absolutely nothing to do with their concern about what happened in chapter 10. So if we look to their challenge to Peter in Acts 11.3, they say, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. The story of Peter entering into a house 
of a Gentile man, having dinner, telling him the good news of Jesus, and in the midst of that sermon, having the Spirit of God fall from heaven and bless Cornelius' household in a way that had not been seen since Pentecost, since Samaria, that blessed even the Gentiles. It gets to Jerusalem, and the apostles and the brothers there, particularly the ones of the circumcision party, say, yes, but you ate with Gentiles, to which Luke suggests you may have missed the purpose of this event. But if we go all the way back to the very beginning of Peter's narration of how this happens, what Peter says went on and why it happened, it's not about Gentile inclusion. It's about table fellowship. The vision that Peter sees of this sheet coming down from heaven is covered in animals. And the command that he's given isn't go and bring them into the people of God, isn't tell them the good news of Jesus, it's kill and eat. You're hungry, eat something. And when he says, surely not, he's commanded, do not, under any circumstances, label as unclean that which God has called clean. Now, later in chapter 10, Peter explains this vision when he gets to Cornelius as God has prepared my heart. God has told me that I should not call unclean what he has called clean. So if you've seen a vision of an angel, God has spoken to you, and, and I have no idea what's going on here, but we'll see what happens. And Peter's faithfulness in stepping forward, speaking to someone who he assumes is to put it politely, bad news. That step of faithfulness leads to a blessing of the Spirit that initiates a ministry that expands from Caesarea through the rest of the Mediterranean, east into India, expands through the whole world. When we say that the church is made up of Gentiles grafted on to the branch of the tree of Judah, of Israel. Most of us are Gentiles. Most of the church is Gentile at this moment in time. And this is possible because of Peter's faithfulness. When we approach the question here, though, don't allegorize the vision too quickly. Peter speaks to Cornelius and explains the allegorical explanation. The God told me not to call something unclean, so I won't call you unclean. But we can see from the challenge of his rivals that this is not the case for them. The crux of the issue for them is not a matter of Gentile inclusion. It's not a matter of God speaking. It's a matter of purity and table fellowship. This is what we've always done. We don't, we don't eat with Gentiles. When we come to Peter's defense, you can see even more clearly, this is an interpersonal fracture within the people of God. 
what you expect to be revival on par with Pentecost, where the Spirit comes from heaven and fire is visible and people are speaking and hearing the Word of God in a manner they never expected. And you have thousands baptized in a single day. God comes to one Gentile household and immediately the response of the to the person who did the evangelism is why did you have dinner peter lays out a legal defense this pattern of laying out from the very beginning and starting from the very beginning of the narration and walking his listeners through every piece along the way peter is a defense attorney laying out his best case to defend himself in a legal matter here. This is a legal interpersonal dispute, and it's not over the Spirit of God. And in fact, when Peter gets to the end, it's the culmination of his testimony, the testimony of God himself in the presence of the Spirit. And so Peter ends his legal defense against his accusatory, fractious brothers and says, God himself blessed the people of Cornelius' household. And who was I to stand against God? And of course... As we read this verse, we know what the answer is, and so do every single one of Peter's listeners. Who are you to stand against God? Well, go to the end of Job, if you would like an answer to this question. There's about eight chapters of chastising and berating of people who think that they know better than God. In fact, go back to Genesis 3 if you would like to see the consequences of thinking that you, not God, should be determining what is good and what is evil. Peter has backed his opponents into a corner. He's very astute. And Peter, you can see back in chapter 10, knows that trouble is coming because he takes brothers from Joppa with him. He doesn't have anyone who can testify to the fact that he saw this vision. But he does have six brothers who are from that circumcision party that so opposes him, who were there. He may have been as innocent as a dove, but he took Jesus' words seriously and was as wise as a serpent in doing what it was that God had asked of him. So what we see is this revival, this moment where God's Spirit is poured out on a new group of people, something that should be a blessing where we can immediately see God is at work and we can enfold them in and begin moving forward on whatever task it is that God has next. It does not go the way that we might expect when we hear the word revival. Instead, we have a bunch of people wondering why it is that he, 
is now part of the people of God. He's not circumcised, and he's been eating pork. And just because Peter ate with him doesn't mean that we need to accept that he is necessarily a member of the people of God now. It's only when Peter gets to the moment, the point in the story that should be the pinnacle, that should be the central part, and it is in Luke's retelling, that the Spirit of God is at work here, that finally the opposition says, we, we can't stand against God, surely. And they glorify God and say, apparently God has brought blessings even on the Gentiles. But as we read on in Acts, we see that's not quite the end of the story. Because when Paul begins evangelizing to Gentiles, the circumcision party once more, despite the lesson of chapter 11, raise up flags, call Paul back to Jerusalem, and Barnabas with him. Barnabas, the brother of encouragement, who was Paul's advocate from day one, and a prominent member of their own Jerusalem fellowship before he left for Antioch. They're called back to give an account on this point. They still haven't learned. Even Peter's effective legal defense doesn't convince to the point where it's a resolved issue. Human beings are slow to change and institutions even more so. But we can see in the way that Luke presents this passage that the circumcision party has missed the point. And one of the reasons why the passage is read the way that I explained it at the very beginning is precisely because that's exactly how it fits into the narrative of Acts. Luke is interested in the passage of God's Spirit from one group to the next. This is the important thing. If you get nothing else from chapter 11 in Acts, you should get the fact that God has blessed the Gentiles and the Spirit of God is upon them and they now are to bring good news to the poor, to break the chains of the captives and to declare the year of the Lord's favor just as Jesus did in Luke 4. But this doesn't mean that it's always clear. This is the lens through which we should approach this. But all too often, we find ourselves in the, par, in the place of the circumcision party. All too often, I think when I read the Bible, I would like to place myself in Jesus's shoes. I would like to place myself in Paul's shoes, in Peter's shoes, to walk and be covered by the dust of my rabbi to the point where my actions look like his actions. But all too often, when I come to a biblical text, I find myself having done something that far more relates to the Pharisees, to the circumcision party, 
to the challengers of Paul and Peter, even to Peter himself in Galatians 2, for instance. When we find ourselves in the protagonists of our biblical narratives, we can gloss over the fact that there but for the grace of God go I, and by there I mean to the legalism of the Pharisees, to the ethnocentrism of the circumcision party, to the concern for holiness and sanctity that has excluded the very people that God has blessed with the presence of his spirit. When we pray for revival, we must also pray for ourselves that we are not left behind as the spirit moves. Revival is the renewal of the people of God. I mean, this is Billy Graham's tent revivals, the great awakening in the United States back in the 1800s, Wesley's various revivals over the course of his ministry here in the United Kingdom. But revival simply incorporates new people into the people of God. We can't be blind to the fact that after Pentecost, we have the inclusion of a huge group of people. And beginning in chapter 5, we begin to see that all is not well on the home front. Expanding the people of God does not magically resolve differences. It does not inherently and immediately change our perspectives on other people. It doesn't change the way that we see ourselves. What it does is it puts us in conversation with people who have different perspectives than our own. What it does is it can baptize with the Holy Spirit a perspective that we might have removed as a possibility. Now, as I said, people resist change, and institutions are even more resistant to change. And these are important defense mechanisms. These are ways to make sure that we aren't caught up, as Paul said, in the whim, in the gust of any particular fancy or flight of thought that happens to be the zeitgeist of the age. But these defense mechanisms can keep us locked in and unwilling to see where God himself is moving. We must be willing to learn about God, to learn about Christ, to learn about the movement and the power of the Spirit from the godless, from the immoral, from the pork-eating heathen whoever that may be for us. The baptism of the Spirit is the beginning of the journey. Because what we see 
at each stage along the way. There are fractures and difficulties in chapter 5 of Acts as the Hellenists and the Hebrews begin to not quite see eye to eye. And so they appoint deacons. They appoint men to watch over the distribution of materials to resolve the issue. They learn from each other. And then the Samaritans are blessed with the blessings of God. And Jerusalem doesn't know what to do with this, so they send two of the twelve, they send Peter and John to figure out what's going on. And here we see Simon the magician, a man who Philip evangelized, who was baptized. He comes to Peter and John and says, uh, how much money do I need to give you so you can give me the power that you have? And at this moment, Peter and John teach Simon. And here, rather than the Hellenists teaching the Hebrews, it's the apostles teaching the magician. And they tell Simon, no, God, God does not work this way. I can't give you the spirit for money, even if I wanted to, because God does not find favor based upon a man's face or his wallet in this case. And when we get to chapter 11, the circumcision party confronts Peter for his table fellowship, possibly even for, at this point, having eaten pork in table fellowship, having not only eaten with a Gentile, but broken food laws. There are many things that might find their way into a Jewish household, but non-kosher food is not one of them. And yet, when confronted by the fact that the Spirit of God has fallen on the Gentiles, that Peter's table fellowship with Cornelius is blessed, the circumcision party relents. But they haven't quite learned. And so in chapter 15, again, we see Paul and Barnabas confronting the same problem. And Peter once again has to rehash what happened in the house of Cornelius. And at this point, the Jewish Christians, the circumcision party in particular, finally seem to come to an agreement. But we can see through Acts, if we watch carefully how we engage with each other. The revival of Pentecost is not the end of the story. It's only the beginning. The blessing of the Samaritan woman and women and men and children in, in chapter 8, my goodness, sleepless nights with a little one. Ah. <laughs> uh, the blessing of the Samaritans with the Holy Spirit includes a group of people who have not been on the same footing as their Jewish brethren in almost a thousand years. And the inclusion of the Gentiles includes a group in the people of God that has been promised 
in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, the Lord has been preparing this way for generations. And yet, each step along the way, we need to learn from each other. The Gentiles, Cornelius may have been a God-fearer, but many of the Gentiles that Paul preached to, he had to tell them the stories of God with his people. And the Gentiles bring in a new perspective of what it means to follow Jesus, what it can mean to follow Jesus as a Gentile, something that hasn't been considered to this point. Revival is the beginning of the story, but it cannot be the end. If revival expands the people of God, then it is our responsibility and our privilege to learn from those around us, those whom we disagree with, to learn how to live together, to learn how to know God better, and to learn where we might be wrong. Because if the Spirit might expand the people of God, it is the people who must dwell together in that Spirit. We must listen to the Spirit. We must see the person of Jesus in the eyes of our neighbor in the hands of our friends, and in the words of our foes. So, as we go out, let us see the work of God among us. And let us see the work of God among the people of Cornerstone, of the people in the Free Church, the people of Vineyard, the people of the various and sundry churches of St. Andrews, the ways that God is at work in this town are incredible. The ways that God is at work in this nation and in this world through his people are beyond comprehension. Let us not get so caught on the things that divide us that we lose sight of what holds us together in Christ. Let us pray. <clears throat> Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Bring revival. Renew your people. Expand your church. Bring new eyes to see and new ears to hear and new voices to teach us all that we might hear your voice and see your hands at work, that we might be your hands and your feet to someone else, whether that person is in this room, in this building, or even in this town, wherever they may be. Lord, let us learn from each other. 
And let us in all ways and at all times seek your face in humility and compassion. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.